Hello and welcome to the StrongPulse.net podcast. This is episode number 74. My name is Adam. Today we're joined by Kevin. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing all right. Uh, today we have a wonderful show lined up, starting with an interview with Bria Grant and Vera Miao on their new film, Best Friends Forever, which is currently playing on Video On Demand. Then we'll be speaking with Sean Cadlick and Deb Toolman on their film, Born This Way, which is premiering this week at Outfest in L.A. Of course, we'll also be talking about some of what we've been watching, and finally we'll be going over this week's movie predictions and DVD and Blu-ray releases. First up, you may know our first guest from shows such as Dexter, Heroes, and NCIS, among many others, but now Bria Grant and Vera Miao wrote and directed their own feature titled Best Friends Forever, which is currently playing on demand. Let's take a listen. Thank you so much for being here, guys. I was wondering if you could just start by telling us a little bit about the film. Yeah, Best Friends Forever is an apocalyptic apocalyptic road trip movie um, that takes place um, on a road trip from Los Angeles to Austin um, during the hush, uh, the hush period. Is that what we're calling it, Vera? The, the, yeah. Yeah. The time during a nuclear apocalypse, but the time basically right when it starts, not not super post-apocalyptic, very on the breach of an apocalypse. And Bria, this is your directorial debut. What made you decide to break into writing and directing, coming from acting? Well, Bria and I wrote it together, and um, I think we both. I mean, we we were taking acting classes together, and the problem with being an actor is that you spend a, spend a lot of your time sort of, I mean, just waiting for the phone to ring. I mean, there's no better way to put it. Like, literally, I wait for my agent to call me and say, hey, you have an audition, or there's a project that you might be able to be involved with if you're really super lucky. So it, it's nice to be able to create your own content. I mean, and it, I mean, I think without Vera, I don't think I actually would have gone through with making it, but um, with the both of us, I think we sort of pressured each other and encouraged each other enough um, to, to go out there and actually do it, you know, not just to write the script. Right. And it, it seems like you, you guys have a lot of good on-screen chemistry. Uh, I take it that you guys are friends in real life? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I said that. I said that perfectly, <laughs> casually. Um, that's a joke. Yeah. Yes, we're totally friends on, on, in real life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we met in an acting class a few years back, and um, we had a lot of things in common, the two major things being that we both like action movies or things explode and crazy sci-fi movies but we also both have a background in sort of like women's studies feminism world which is two things you don't see combined terribly often so mm-hmm. it's nice to meet another person with those things in common yeah absolutely so one of the big things about this film is that it's shot on 16 millimeters is that correct yeah it's super it Super 16. So what what made you guys decide to go with that route? Vera literally said, she's like, wouldn't it be cool if we shot on film? We're like, whatever, we can't afford that. And then I wouldn't drop it. I think, um, yeah. I mean, I think that when we went through the process of thinking about the actual uh, production, a lot of folks told us, uh, you know, film is really a stupid choice for a low-budget independent. Um, and so I think I, I was sort of a little bit of a pitbull about it, um, not from um, any kind of informed position about the relative merits of mm-hmm. digital versus um, celluloid. It was more around that I love film. I think film is breathtakingly beautiful. Um, and 
you know, I probably there's a there's a kind of a romance involved in it for me personally. And actually, I felt like Bria <clears throat> and we had another producer involved, Stacy, you know, could relate with me on that end. Um, but then I think, you know, and Bria could talk about this a little bit more. I think there was, you know, uh, in the end, I feel like we were somewhat vindicated in our choice uh, yeah. just because, you know, like the, a road trip film through the Southwest. Um, a lot of it in super bright, sunny daylight in a car um, is, is, is beautifully represented on film. And mm-hmm. I think that um, digital would have, you know, could also, you can also get beautiful results, but it requires a little bit more um, working with the equipment um, in a way that I think some of, I, I don't know, I just, I think that the, you know, the, the imagery is, and the color is incredible um, and the grain is so incredible that, for me, like outside of the, like the sort of the producing aspects of it, the, you know, like the budget, the pros and cons, the sort of technical sides of it, um, I really love <clears throat> visually what Bria and our cinematographer ended up doing with it. Yeah, I mean, the whole film has like a throwback feel to it, you know, and so mm-hmm. shooting on 16 just made it, you know, push it further in that direction. I think it was just part of the aesthetic of the movie. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, it, the, the act of shooting it on uh, Super 16 really lends itself to the visual style of the movie. I mean, when you yeah. deal with the movie that has that kind of subject matter, it, it seems like shooting on film just kind of goes hand in hand with the look and what you're kind of going for. Absolutely. And yeah. That was a, a great choice for you guys to, to decide to do it that way, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, and but just as far as like the expansive landscapes that are out there, I just don't feel it could have been captured well um, visually. And me being so inexperienced, I wanted something that I felt like it would be harder for me to screw up, you know. And I mean, it's just that a film captures things so much better, you know. And and I could look at it and know it would would just be it would just look more beautiful. And and it was funny while we were shooting, um, our um, production designer pointed out to me one day. She was like. You know, this is actually saving money in a way because I mean we're working on you know a very tight schedule on a shoestring budget, and it meant that you know I I I think on my highest day I shot eighteen hundred feet. On my average days, I think I was allowed to shoot about thirteen hundred feet, which is like nothing. I mean, if you know anything about film, that's like nothing. Mm -hmm. So it would save us time because we couldn't do you know thirty takes of the scene just to get the improvisation right or to get the um, you know, to, to, to get everything we wanted, I had to be very limited and specific about what I wanted from each scene. And so we knew going in, I'm like, you know, we had, you know, six setups for the scene that's set. We had two setups for the scene that's set, you know, and that was it. And, and Vera knew, like, you know, we have, you get two takes, if that. Most yeah. of them, you got one take, you know. And, mm-hmm. and that, that limit um, actually was a good thing because it helped us to limit our time on a, when we were, like, traveling to locations, we were shooting in the middle of nowhere. We had a limited amount of daylight because we were shooting in Texas, and the sun, once the sun went down behind the mountains, it was like gone. So it just it helped us overall, actually, to keep like a um, you know just a limit on the entire on the shoot. And I think also it, it forced us, along with what Bria is saying, and just from my experience, you know, acting in it, it just forced us to make choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and just commit to them. And I think in digital, you know, there's some comfort and there's some value, right, to being able to almost warm up while you're shooting, um, yeah. sort of get it right while you're doing it. I mean, there's, there's lots of value to that from a lot of different ways. 
But I actually think that in this, in our film, I maybe at least based on some of the stuff that I've read, you know, feels a little bit more like, you know, more classic or traditional film shoots pre-digital era, right? Which is where the director really has to know what she wants. And then the actors really have to be prepared to make their choices and to commit to them on the first take. Um, and, you know, and also that we don't get to see the daily, like we don't get to see playback. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we were in the middle of literally nowhere. So dailies were not possible either, um, yeah. you know, in, in any kind of like a rapid turnaround. Yeah. yeah. So it was a little, it was, a, it was a, you know, for a lot of reasons, making an independent film is leap of faith, right? But I think that choosing to shoot it on film made it that much more. How long did it take you guys to shoot? Um, we shot 17 days for our original um, shoot, and then we went back and had five reshoot days. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the, the film's plot a little bit, uh, and I don't want to give any kind of spoilers away, anything like that. And uh, like you mentioned earlier, it is kind of set along the backdrop of the apocalypse or the end of the world, but really it's it's more of a, a coming-of-age story sort of and a, and a road trip movie kind of mixed in there what made you decide to have it be like an end of the world type backdrop with this well you know as bria mentioned like we we really hit it off when we first met because just straight up we're huge nerds you know and we <laughs> you know the kinds of stories that we actually prefer to consume you know on our own all the time are sci-fi horror fantasy we love apocalypse stories you know, and and we actually, when we started this process, we were writing a different film. We were writing a, a much more straight-up slasher horror film um, mm. with the two of us because we love horror, and we kind of thought, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna create our own material, we can bring a really unique, um, you know, spin to classic horror films, right? Uh, and we started writing that script, and we went pretty far into it, and. We kind of let it go because um, it didn't feel right for a variety of reasons, not least of which is we thought, hey, <laughs> it might be kind of brutal to subject ourselves to million-hour days where we're, we're tortured and slashed and covered in sticky syrup blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and we kind of <clears throat> re- stopped for a second and took a little bit of time to regroup. So we always knew that, um, you know, like one of the things I loved about Bria is that she understood you know, why I'm so obsessed with Joss Whedon, you know, like, and why I think that genre is, you know, one of the most powerful ways to tell um, real human stories mm-hmm. because of the extremity of the circumstances, right? It kind of gives us freedom to really explore all of our fears and all of our big emotions. And so we always knew that we were going to do a story that, that you know, that had um, genre elements and that was a genre story and but she was actually driving on a road trip, um, I think, from um, L.A., actually, uh, through that territory and gave me a call and was just struck by how bleak and barren the landscape was. And I was like, this is maybe the landscape for us to do the story, and what if it's an end-of-the-world tale? Um, the, 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 the end-of-the-world tale, I think, was really our starting point, and the, the story that emerged about this friendship between these two women kind of evolved out of that. Hmm. And the interesting thing about the film is that it's not easily, you can't easily categorize this film. Like there's, there's elements of a lot of things in it, right? Like there's, there's a good bit of comedy. There's this 
road trip story, but there's it also does go to some fairly dark places as well. Yeah, um, I was yeah. To be honest, I was a little bummed when I looked on iTunes and it was like just categorized as independent because mm-hmm. I I thought because I myself think of it as um, sort of a drama slash sci-fi story. I mean, and and obviously the sci-fi is a little bit on the back on on the backdrop, but I do think it plays a role in uh, in informing the characters and the decisions they make. I mean, that's like the main thing that pushes them into this situation is, is you know this nuclear. Um, explosion. So, I mean, yeah, I and mean, I think movies are going that way. I mean, I, I think it's rare to go see a movie, you know, that doesn't have a lot of elements, and I think more and more we're starting to mix up the genres because we have people like us who are fans of, like, all these different genres. Like, I love, like, I love a, a road trip movie. I love a buddy movie. I, I love movies about female friendship, and there's not a whole lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to add in these elements of other movies that I love, you know. So, I mean, I think I think movies are getting more and more, I mean, obviously you have these giant movies that are, that I'm just be about Lone Ranger or whatever. But I, mean, I think as far as the indie world goes, I think people are taking more chances and we're allowed to do that because we don't spend the budgets that are Lone Ranger, so if we fail miserably, it doesn't matter as much. You know, and I also think that, it, you know, that, yeah, that because it was something that Bria and I wrote, you know, and then sort of shaped and created and sort of made into being, it's more of a, it, I think it's a pretty good reflection of, sort of who we are, and as Bria said, like, the, the things that we love, and also real life. Like, in real life, we don't live our lives tonally the same, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, and I think that that's one of the, kind of, like, the fabrications of film, right? Like, you have to fit a genre, or you have to fit a category, you have to fit a type, and so you have to adhere a little bit to some conventions or some rules about, like, what, you know, are you hitting all of your marks and, and to ensure that you're firmly in comedy, or that to ensure you're firmly in drama, right? And, right. you know, and in reality, that's actually not how we experience life or the world or, like, a moment-to-moment reality. Um, and, you know, lots, you know, like, it, you know, to, it, and especially if you go into really, really dark stuff, you have to have moments of humor um, because that's actually real life unless this is, like, a Lars von Trier sort of situation, and, you know, and, and it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, <laughs> And um, <laughs> and by the same notion, you can't be afraid if you're going to create something that's entertaining, you know, and has sort of funny, you know, funny sort of more comedic moments or timing. You can't be afraid to go dark, you know, in some sort of sort of, you know, like allegiance to the notion of a consistent tone, right? It's just mm-hmm. not a reflection of how we live and how we think. I mean, for God's sakes, a day of shooting, you know, there are times when I wanted to, like, kill myself, <laughs> and then an hour later, I'm laughing hysterically. And so, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, in that respect, um, it's, you know, it's both, like a, you know, a reflection of the fact that we love you know, a million different kinds of genres. Like, I'm, like I said, we're nerds. I'm a total nerd. I'm, I have a 13-year-old boy alive and well inside of me making movie choices. <laughs> but I'm, I'm also, like, some of my favorite films are tiny, independent, emotional things like Weekend, which is, you know, a British gay romance mm-hmm. story, you know? And so, like, it's, you know, so I think that we, you know, and, and Bria, too. Bria is the first to, like, you know, she'll go see some movies that are slower than I, I can even handle, and we brought all of that, you know, we didn't, we didn't, you know, we tried our best to really learn from people, um, 
much, you know, sort of more experienced people who've done this before. But then I also think to a certain degree we allowed ourselves, you know, to, you know, to sort of follow whatever evolved. There's kind of a growing trend in films taking on this end of the world scenario. And I was wondering if you guys had any insight as to what what's making this so popular. I have a theory about this, actually, because, I mean, we started making this movie a couple years ago, and um, and I noticed at the time, even, there were a lot of movies coming out that were a little, um, you know, that had, that had that theme. And this is a total shot in the dark, but I was thinking about it the other day, that I think because the world feels smaller now, like, you know, because we're so interconnected with, like, with, I mean, essentially with the Internet, but because travel is easier and because... You know, you can keep in touch with someone who lives in China or wherever um, and, and through Facebook, you know, and you know everything that's happening. I think that the idea of a worldwide disaster doesn't seem quite as far away. And I also think there was a time where, you know, when my parents were my age, that if there was a disaster in, you know, somewhere far away, that it, it didn't affect them as much. But, you know, now, like, I mean, I've been listening to the radio all day because I, I want to know how everything in Egypt is going to affect us as well as affects them, but it's like everything seems so much more interconnected that I think the fear of like a big global issue, I mean, whether it be an apocalypse, a war, or or a nuclear bomb, because it's just a nuclear bomb, um, which is a big deal, um, you know, I think it seems more likely to affect all of us in our own selfish little world, you know, I mean, it's more likely to come in and invade us, I think that's yeah. part of the reason yeah, and I, we're so I, yeah, I think that that's, you know, like, and, and then I would say that um, a, a sort of like another sort of leg of that similar theory is, you know, I think that you see it with the, you know, sort of the rise and maybe the waning right now of the popularity of zombie stories, but general mm-hmm. apocalypse and end of the world is the reflection of our anxiety because we do have all of this information and a lot of the information is extremely grim. Right, like, you know, where we we can, you know, I, I mean, it's for me sometimes I watch, you know, I watch the news and I despair, truly, like I'm not making shit up. And there's a way in which I think that right now I think that there is overall an anxiety about what's coming next, and particularly, and this is just my opinion, particularly for the U.S., which has really, you know, found, you know, been existing you know, in this sort of sense and identity of being the world's number one superpower, um, as well, you know, economically, but also morally, mm-hmm. culturally, I think actually there is a generalized anxiety specific to the U.S. that says we're losing that place. There are other countries that are coming up fast or protect, in some places have exceeded us. And what does that mean for what's coming next? Is it the end of everything that we know? And is that end mean darker days for this country, which is really like, you know, honestly enjoyed the sun for a really long time, you know? And, you know, so for me, it's a little bit of like follow the Roman Empire, um, not to be overly dramatic, but there's that, that there is that anxiety underneath, you know? Um, so, it, you know, and, it, and it's, so it's a combination. It's like we can feel that all of the things that are happening in the world around us, politically in other countries, environmentally, right, are like next door. We can read about it in real time as it's happening. Um, And so it brings it all really close. And then at the same time in this country, I think people don't know what's going to be next for the U.S., which is experience a high level of confidence 
honestly, and kind of untouchability for so long, which I think is completely at risk. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think when you look back at kind of the history and trends of film and cinema in general, it, it always reflects how the general populace feels, right? So like, you know, during the 80s, we had a lot of movies that were based on the kind of decadence of the 80s. And I think now people have a pretty grim outlook. And I think that that's definitely one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of uh, films come out like this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have one, uh, one final question before we do some plugging. If the apocalypse does occur, how would you guys react? Would you, would you react similarly to your characters? I think I would be, I, I personally would be a little bit more vigilant. I mean, like, I have, uh, like, a bug out bag, and now I have, um, I just put together, like, a whole new, like, earthquake preparedness kit that's, like, not only just a backpack to grab, I have, like, a, a big bucket thing that has, like, weapons and water for, like, 20-something days and, like, all this kind of stuff in it. <laughs> so I'd be, I'm, like, I'm a lot more prepared. I'm a little bit more obsessed with apocalyptic scenarios, real-life apocalyptic scenarios than uh, my character Harriet ever would be, I think. Okay. Fair, um, I, wish, think? <laughs> I wish I could say the same. I'm pretty <laughs> lame on disaster preparation. But there's, like, two things. One part of my character I think I would absolutely be the opposite of, which is the, the part um, where Reba, I think almost to a willful degree, chooses not to see the signs around her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and interpret them, you know, that, that is not me. I would spend my entire time trying to figure out exactly what was happening. Um, and, you know, you know, sort of think, yeah, you know, information is power, right? That would be the standpoint. So then that way I'd be the opposite. But, um, th- I will say one thing that I like about the character, which I think is, is some, would be what I would do in the face of an apocalypse is that I think she turns who's most important to her first. Like, that's mm-hmm. what's most critical. And that's what I would do. I would spend my entire time tracking down all of my loved ones, making sure they're okay, seeing where they are, and then trying to find ways to, to meet up and come together where it makes sense. Like, that would be my first um, impulse. And so, probably, you know, I might get killed because I'm so busy trying to collect all my, my peace that I... <laughs> <laughs> leave myself vulnerable but at least I have the information and I know yeah. that they're okay so yeah so the the film is again best friends forever it's currently playing on iTunes right and it comes out uh, July 5th on other VOD platforms is that correct mm-hmm. yeah. yeah everywhere else and, and cable as well and cable cable as well okay well thank you so much guys for spending some time with us yeah thank Great. you thank you thank you again Vera and Bria Again, the film is Best Friends Forever. You can find it on any of your preferred video on-demand services. Next up, Sean Cadlick and Deb Toolman have a new documentary premiering at Outfest in L.A. June 14th titled Born This Way, which explores the underground LGBT community in Cameroon where more people are imprisoned for being gay than anywhere else in the world. Thanks so much for speaking with us, guys. Uh, why don't we start... By just telling telling us a little bit about Born This Way. Um, just shall I just assume that um, just kind of start from the beginning, yeah? For, like assume that nobody knows anything about it. Yeah, just just um, assume that that uh, nobody knows anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> well, Born Born This Way is 
a documentary that explores what it's like to be gay and lesbian in modern Africa and the country that we chose to focus on um, through some connections through Human Rights Watch with Cameroon. And we follow, in a pretty intimate way, a couple of subjects, a man and a woman, both in their late 20s, kind of through their everyday lives um, as they grapple with challenges around the legal issue. It's illegal to be gay there, five years in prison, more arrests there for homosexuality than anywhere in the world. Um, we follow them through their, their struggle with, um, with the law, with religion, with their families. Um, and then also kind of explore and try, try to get under the surface a little bit of what, what's changing in the culture and what may be possible for the future as they move toward equality in their own, kind of in their own way, at their own pace, in their own time. It's a very, it, it's, um, we've really tried to let Cameron and the subjects in the film speak for this issue and explore how it is, how it is for them and not so much what we think it should be. Hmm. Uh, Sean, do you have anything to add to that? I think that was a great introduction. Yeah, I think it was too, actually. Um, so I'm wondering how you guys came together and decided on this subject. Mm-hmm. Well, we met in the third grade in a very small town in uh, sort of central Southern California called Fraser Park. And um, we've known each other since then. And um, we worked on our first video project together, I guess about eight years ago, right? Or so, seven or eight years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, just about two and a half years ago, I met uh, Steve Namande, who's one of the founders of Alternative Cameroon, and that's the first gay and lesbian center in Cameroon. Um, and I met him through Human Rights Watch in Los Angeles. They brought him there to honor him at an event as a human rights hero. And um, when I first met him, you know, I he was incredible and he started to talk about the folks who work at the center that he founded and the people who come there to be part of the community and they all sounded like these incredibly brave and creative and passionate people who were you know despite living in one of the most homophobic places in the world were really exploring what it means to like you know to form a community to find strength from each other, and also to figure out how they might be able to change things. Um, and so that was all very exciting, and I called Deb, and we talked about it. And um, Deb and I have worked on a few short projects together over the past, like, eight or so years. So um, it just, you know, we decided to work on it together. So Cameroon imprisons more people for being homosexual than any place in the world. Do you think that it's it's due to Christianity, or is, is there more to that? Like, why why Cameroon? I, I mean, maybe we can both answer this question because it's a complex one, and, and and probably the most honest answer is we don't know. <clears throat> it's not um, the religious climate, although it is very much influenced by the Catholic Church. Actually, is is certainly not the only factor. Um, one of the things that we saw while we were filming was the association between homosexuality and witchcraft, which is also illegal um, and kind of, um, yeah, in fact, 
the, the two women, we, we follow the trial of two lesbians who were arrested while we were actually there shooting in Cameroon, and the official charges against them were uh, lesbianism and witchcraft. <laughs> you know, so, the, so there's that piece. Um, and then, you know, there's also this, the sense that, you know, the, the president has been in power since um, 1982, Sean? Uh, yeah, 81 or 82. 81 like or 82. And, 31 and years. So yeah, so there's, there is a sense that, this, um, that from, from a legal standpoint, um, there, it, it's really hard to know how, how much that is, the, the law itself is influencing the, the sort of perpetu- the, perpetuating the homophobia amongst, um, you know, just a, a, amongst everyday people. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, uh, is it more a government thing or are the people more intolerant like it because in the in the film it seems like it's it's kind of both but are the are the people in general more accepting well it seems there there's incredibly strong homophobia but there's also we felt a lot of potential for understanding like there's a scene in the Mm -hmm. film um where one of the women who was on trial for lesbianism is traveling back to, um, to the city after the trial in the country. Um, and she has a conversation with the cab driver who has never met a lesbian before, like yeah. in his life, you that know? Was, and, that was a really interesting scene. <laughs> right? And so he is, at the beginning, he's kind of like standoffish, but curious, right? And he's clearly not like on her side at the beginning, but they have this really like, bizarrely honest conversation right like he asks questions that i think none of <laughs> Inappro- us would have... <laughs> inappropriate well, well to us maybe <laughs> i mean to them like they were cool with it you know um and by the end of the conversation i think you really see him he says like wow you're really cool you know it's like really cool that you're just being yourself and like mm-hmm. you know and like you're different mm-hmm. and the ways that you're different are kind of neat, <laughs> you know, and there are all yeah. these layers of like why he's interested. But, um, but I don't know, it felt from talking to the folks we know there who are LGBT and just being there, it feels like that kind of openness and curiosity is there among a lot of people. And that when they do get to make contact with someone different, you know, they're willing to kind of like figure it out and see what's there instead of just reacting against it and attacking them or something does it does it seem like modern day cameroon is it's more acceptable or safer now than decades ago well the some of yeah that's a good question i don't know about decades ago honestly i mean it just no one was out decades ago right it was just not something that that people talked about at all but the, um, some of the people who are in charge of the center, the Gay and Lesbian Center in Cameroon, are out publicly, completely. And they do media as out Cameroonians. Um, and they've said, Yves Yom in particular, said that five years ago, he didn't think that would have been possible and that things really have changed so that he feels safe to do that. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a good sign. But yeah, and we don't know about the more traditional culture stretching back, you know, centuries or millennia, 
I mean, it's such an incredibly diverse country, right? There are like over 200 languages spoken. Mm-hmm. So it's this collection of very different cultures. And, and we just, we don't know what the history is like um, with most of those. Um, so when the film uh, comes to a close, uh, two of the individuals that you're following are about to be sent to prison. Have they had their appeals since the filming of this movie? No, um, they're, they're still waiting. And, and, we, and what we understand from Elise, their, their, the lawyer representing them, is, is that it'll, it will be a couple of years, at least another year. But they're not, they're not currently in prison, is that correct? Correct. Okay, so mm-hmm. at, least, at least they're not stuck in prison. Um, right. <clears throat> did you find the, the subjects of the film through the uh, Alternatives Cameroon? Yes, we did. Um, we, we had the initial invitation to come visit the center from, the man, from Steve Namande that Sean mentioned earlier. And he told them they, they knew about the project um, and we corresponded with them before we arrived. So when we did arrive, it was um, we didn't expect that anyone would want to actually show their faces on camera. You know, we, we expected to shoot um, to you know, come up with creative ways to make a film without revealing identity at all, mm-hmm. and the character. Uh, you know, I mean, all of pretty much everyone who worked there that like was very enthusiastic about the film, and we found that the opposite to be true. That they were, you know, saying things like that they were tired of Cameron pretending that homosexuality doesn't exist. Um, you know, just a, a lot of a lot of conversations like. Yeah, I'll be on camera. Like, get me, you know, like, really, really having a lot to say and feeling energized by the opportunity to say it. And so we did talk to probably um, close to a dozen people who were interested in, in you know, let, help, letting us explore their stories and their experience on camera. And we ended up. Um, we ended up choosing Cedric and Gertrude for a number of reasons, um, but that, that is how we met them, yes. And uh, at, at one point, um, one of the subjects, need, he actually has to move uh, because he's, he was threatened with violence. They, whoever it was said they were going to come and kill him. Uh, do you think, did you filming have anything to do with with him being outed or was it through other means that they found him? Yeah. He had already been outed in his neighborhood. Um, he apparently, one of his friends was staying with him and hit on one of the neighbors (laughs) and, and the neighborhood then found out that like there were, there were gay people here. Um, and that was, that was several months before we started with him. Mm. Um, but then the question of, yeah, seeing, seeing these foreigners following him with cameras, like, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe that there was jealousy, maybe that, like, you know, a sense that, like, like, oh, you know, like they hadn't, they had threatened him, but not quite as intensely uh, before. So, yeah, it seems like that certainly could be possible. Was there, was there any concern with, like, when you were filming... Uh, Gertrude, for instance, that the cameras there would have a negative impact, like on her life as well. 
Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I feel like it, for her it was a little bit less so. Um, you know, with, with Cedric, we were dealing with kind of these thugs in his neighborhood that, you know, really, I mean, attacks happen all the time, you know, and so this is, that, that, that was really a different issue with, with Gertrude, really the, the concern was um, filming in such a way that it didn't, it didn't make her uncomfortable around her family. And, and since they have a cover already um, with their families, their, their families know that they work at a center called Alternative Cameroon. Mm-hmm. What they think is that the center deals primarily with HIV, AIDS, prevention and treatment. And so it was, um, you know, it, it was pretty simple to just show up and say, okay, well, we're, we're doing a, you know, a little documentary on this center and the people who work there. And so that was kind of how she explained it to the people in her life that were, as we, you know, as we filmed with her. So, yeah, with her, it was less of a concern. I mean, certainly um, the, the scene where she comes out to um, the mother superior. Mm-hmm. You know, it was you, you know the the camera was there, and you know, and, and the mother superior did not know what was happening when it when it happened, and so I I can't say that there was no impact, but um, you know, we 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 like to think impact felt Um, one final question. I I got an email here recently that uh, said that there were. Uh, very recently, some some threats and some attacks on a lot of the organizations, including Alternatives Cameroon. I was wondering if you could um, give us some updates on that. Um, yeah. So um, about, I guess, about a week ago, uh, there was a fire at Alternative Cameroon in the middle of the night, and the folks there suspect that it was arson. And uh, it damaged the center pretty severely. I guess it destroyed the computers and the furniture that they had there. And um, they've asked the police to investigate, but it doesn't sound like they're being very cooperative. Um, so they don't have, there's no new information on who, who specifically may have done it. And according to the email I got here, that there was also... Um, I don't know if it was at Alternatives Cameroon or maybe one of the other uh, organizations that there were files stolen on uh, a lot of the the members of these, but there was money left behind. That's very troubling. Yeah, I think that was at the office of the lawyer Michel Toge, who is um, one of the only two lawyers in Cameroon who defends people accused of homosexuality. Yeah, apparently his office was broken into and files were taken, but but yes, there was money left in the petty cash drawer. Um, so it looks like it was targeting, you know, information rather than, than just some random um, robbery. Mm. That is very troubling. So let's let's go ahead and do some <clears throat> plugging. The the film is set to premiere at Outfest. Do you know when it's going to be premiering there? July uh, July fourteenth at seven thirty p.m. at the Harmony Gold Theater. Okay, and um, also 
Do you have any websites that you want to give our listeners that want to learn more about Alternatives Cameroon or just just uh, the situation of, of things over there? Absolutely. Yeah, the, um, our U- the URL for the film's website is www.bornthiswaydocumentary.com and you can also find us on Facebook um, where we post updates pretty frequently and that's um, also Born This Way documentary. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, guys, and best of luck with the film. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again, Sean and Deb. If you're in L.A., you'll definitely want to check this one out. Again, it's called Born This Way. All right, let's go ahead and jump into some of what we've been watching. I'll kick it off this week. I uh, have a, a good number, good number of movies this week that I saw. Uh-huh. So I'll I'll go through them and actually uh, as a surprise turn of events I Ooh. guess uh, mo- I liked most of them so whoa <laughs> yeah there wasn't there wasn't a lot of of bad this is, stuff this week this is this is gonna be different yeah I don't uh, know if I can handle this first up I saw a documentary called Terms and Conditions May Apply which I'm gonna be holding off on that for a while because uh, it's not out yet and. I recently did an interview with the the director of that film, so we'll be talking to him on next week's show. So we'll be coming back to that, but when it does come out, I do recommend it. What what what's it about? It's really? about internet privacy. Gotcha. And it's it's very interesting and frightening. So it's essentially the stuff where da 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 da, and you have to agree to it. To yes, but it, it gets it goes a lot deeper than that, but. It that's kind of the base for it. Very interesting. Uh, I have a feeling that I don't. I don't want to know <laughs> those things. No, it, it it definitely you definitely don't want to know, but you should. <laughs> you I know. Should. I know. I should. Uh, then I saw Europa Report, which is currently playing on demand right now. This is a low budget, very low budget sci-fi film. A lot of people are calling it hard sci-fi, but. I guess it could be considered hard hard sci-fi. Uh, it stars. What, what's that mean? What does that mean? Hard sci-fi means that it's it really delves into the science aspect of it, where they get pretty deep into how things work. Okay. Okay. I gotcha. Uh, this was actually pretty good. I was really amazed at the how it looked. I mean, the the visuals in this for being such a low budget were pretty impressive. Like I looked it up and this movie was filmed in Brooklyn, New York, <laughs> but it takes place on Jupiter's moon Europa. All right. Uh, I'm, very, I'm, sli- I'm slightly interested in this. Yeah. I mean, uh, the basic premise is that a, in the near future, a team is sent into space to explore uh, Europa and, look for signs of life and things go terribly wrong. I will say, and this, this is mainly for you, Kevin. It's not like an alien movie. It's not a horror movie. Okay. This is like straight up sci-fi. And, uh, I, I enjoyed it. The, a lot of the camera tricks and things that they used were really effective. And I think that, with a lot of low budget movies that attempt to do new like kind of bigger special effects and that type of thing like 
sometimes it ends up looking better because Perfect. of how limited they are. Mm. If you know, they do it right. It, if, it, if, it forces them to come up with creative ways to show things. Like, for instance, um, District 9, I thought, looked amazing on the budget that it had. And the same goes for your Europa Report. It's, I, I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, there, are t- there are times when it doesn't work. The, oh, yeah. Case in, case in point, Earthling. Yeah, there are, there are definitely that, times. Check where that it out work. if you want a example of where it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean it. It definitely there are times where it doesn't work, but fortunately in this case it it did work pretty nicely. Uh, then I saw Best Friends Forever, which we just heard an interview. Uh, not going to really get into this too much. We do have a review on the site too, but I think that um, Vera and Bria made a pretty good case for checking this one out and i saw gideon's army which is a documentary that premiered on hbo if you have hbo you can check it out on hbo go this is about public defenders in the deep south and this was extremely fascinating i i like uh i like crime documentaries i guess but this one was so well made it was so simple in how they put it together there's no narration there's almost no music and they just kind of let the story speak for itself and let let the characters the subjects of the film be the voice and it's it's crazy i mean the job that these public defenders do is absolutely crazy i would not want to do that no um i mean most most people that become public defenders don't last very long because they the pay is very little and they could be making you know tons of money in a, in a private practice and it's very tiring and grueling i mean most of them have 150 160 cases open at once so <laughs> yeah i mean it's we're talking long hours very difficult work and uh i mean they I just admire these people so much. Highly recommend checking that out. There's also a review for that up on the site. I saw Funky Forest, The First Contact. Ah, I've been wanting to see this for a long time. Yeah, well, (laughs) I saw it. You did it. You did it. Yeah, I I jumped into it. This is a very, very odd Japanese movie. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like... uh, you know, like those uh, Wario games, WarioWare, where it's just yeah. like the the micro games, and it's just crazy stuff, random mm-hmm. crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. That's like this movie, basically. <laughs> Same thing. Uh, there's a couple couple notes I wrote here because it's a very long movie, which mm. is a negative, a big negative. It's entirely too long. There's a a segment that they because there's titles for each segment and. This is an impossible movie to talk about as far as the plot. So some of the some of the highlights for me were the unpopular with women brothers. <laughs> AKA the Guitar Brothers. Uh it's these two two Japanese guys and then one overweight white kid. <laughs> and they go back to them several times throughout the movie, and I thought just the title alone, The Unpopular with Women Brothers, <laughs> I thought was really funny. 
Uh, there's also the Babbling Hot Springs Vixens. Uh, we, we revisit them several times. And it's just okay. like these these friends that are just t- telling each other random stories. Yeah. 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 Uh, right. And then there's several dance numbers throughout the film that will happen randomly. <laughs> and there's they mix in animation into it as well. So it's like a, a Roger Rabbit type thing where there's like cartoons involved. There's people dressed up in silly costumes. <laughs> there's a three-minute intermission in the film that consists of just a blue screen with a countdown timer on it for three minutes. Nice. <laughs> three full minutes. So if you like weird Japanese craziness, you might want to check this out. This is uh, one of the directors is the same guy that, that did uh, Shark Skin Man, Peach Hip Girl. Yeah, Katsuhito Ishii. Yeah, Party, Which I, Party I, 7. I, yeah, I'm a big fan of him because I've also uh, The Taste of Tea. Have you seen that film? No, I haven't seen that. That's a really good film, That's which was, I think, right before Funky Forest. Um, well, the reason I watched this is because the, there's a sequel that's coming out. I believe oh. I believe that it actually premiered at the New York Asian Film Festival that was happening this week. So be on the lookout for that, too. Uh, then I saw Downloaded, which is the Napster documentary by Alex Winter. I like this a lot. I mean, the fact that we grew up during the, the Napster, you know, the whole napster trial and the controversy and all that stuff like a lot of it was familiar a lot of it was me remembering things like oh yeah i do remember that but it was still pretty interesting and it's one of those documentaries that that now it may seem a little insignificant but a decade from now people are going to look back at this documentary to remember the impact that napster had on the internet yeah and more importantly, the impact that it had on the music industry. I mean, that's that's really what one of the things that this film gets into is how Napster completely changed the music industry. And it's I definitely recommend checking it out, especially if you grew up when Napster came out and used Napster like most of us did. Oh, I remember Napster. Oh, it was the greatest thing ever when it first came it was, out. It was the greatest thing ever, but also at the same time, I thought it was fucking terrible. I loved it. And it, like, it never worked for me. Of course it didn't work for you. I know. <laughs> well, Nothing technology-wise ever works for me, for some reason. Well, I remember when Napster first came out, there was... I think I've, most of us were still on dial-up, so one song would take like 10 minutes to download. <laughs> Maybe you appreciate that fucking song though. Oh yeah, I'll tell you that much. You you were much more selective about yeah. your downloading. You 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 went into it. There was a lot of research. You knew exactly what you were downloading. It made you prioritize. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Nowadays, you can just download like thirty-seven albums yeah. in like a matter of like ten minutes. You don't even have to download them. You just load up Spotify and you can just listen to whatever you want. Without having to download anything. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, I saw Turkey Shoot. Turkey Shoot. Which is, uh, it's on Letterboxd it says 83, but I think it actually came out like 82. This is a, it's an Australian exploitation film. This was my Grindhouse Weekly 
pick. So this is also is this the one that's also known as Escape Two Thousand? Yes. And Blood Camp Thatcher. Yes. Yes. Uh, I like Turkey Shoot better. I think it's a much better title. That's the original Australian title. Escape Two Thousand was the American version, and mm. I think that that was that was distributed on uh, Roger Corman's label, but. He he didn't have anything to do with it. It's it's directed by uh, Brian Trenchard Smith, who I think he did he did Stunt Rock, which was another big exploitation film of that time. Uh, he also did Dead End Driving, which I talked about on another Grindhouse Weekly, and he did BMX Bandits, which was Nicole yeah. Kidman's start. Yeah, and this this movie it's uh, basically like. Uh, most dangerous game or surviving the game or one of these where people hunt people <laughs> people so, hunt people like nowadays this formula feels a little bit old but for when this came out you have to realize that there really wasn't anything like this at the time it did take place in the future so there was this kind of uh, dystopian feel to it very much like it was like 1984 meets most dangerous game or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, like ridiculously over the top violent. I mean, people getting limbs cut off and exploding. And I mean, it was pretty extreme, pretty extremely graphic. The other, the other weird thing about it is that one of the hunters and it, they, it's like millionaires that hunt people. And one of them was he had a some sort of like wolfman creature that, that he bought and took him on the hunt with him. And it just that didn't fit with the movie at all. It was so weird. But this guy also hunted people down on a bulldozer and shot at them with a rocket launcher. So he wasn't really oh my god he was having a good time with it yeah sounds like yeah like some of them like there's a woman in it she uses a crossbow uh and then there's like another guy that uses like a sniper rifle but no this This, guy this guy is all in yeah balls to the wall fun rocket launcher bulldozer wolfman and we do get to see him run over somebody with the bulldozer and then uh someone gets rammed into a tree with the bulldozer and split in half. Now, how does that happen? Because bulldozers are really slow. Well, this isn't... It's not... It's, Is it I, a souped-up bulldozer? Yeah, I call it a bulldozer, nice. but... Okay. It's more like... It's more like a dune buggy of sorts. It's not as fast as a dune buggy, I don't think, but it's got a... Uh, what do they call it on the end? A bucket or a trough or whatever? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's got one of those bulldozer things on the end. (laughs) But it also has a stationary gun mounted to it. Mm. It's it's pretty it's pretty badass. And and at one point the the survivors that are being hunted kill the guy and and commission it and start using the bulldozer against their captors. No. Yeah. Wow. I mean it's it's uh decent. It's worth checking out, I guess. Uh, and then the only other thing I saw was Born This Way, which uh-huh. we just talked about. Yeah, we did. Indeed. I guess it's my turn then. It is your turn, Kevin. <laughs> my apologies. Uh, I started out with uh, 
Yesterday Girl, which is a German film from 1967, one of the first films to usher in the new German cinema by Alexander Klug. And for whatever reason, this guy doesn't get any recognition when it comes to German cinema, it seems like. Uh, heavily influenced by French New Wave, and this being his first film based on a short story of his, because he was also an author. And essentially, it's just a young woman moving from East Germany to West Germany, looking for a better life, finds out there isn't one, and she goes through the same shit that she had to go through in East Germany. And it it's a bit all over the place, because like I said, it's his first film, so he just throws everything in there. He tries everything. Camera angles, camera tricks, editing styles. He's just all over the place. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. And I was actually getting slightly bored towards the end of it. But the way that he finished the film was like a perfect ending to everything that happened. It was very, very powerful ending. Just unfortunately, it took a while getting there and just sort of meandered towards that end. But definitely an interesting watch. Um, then I followed that up with Breathing, which this is a feature film debut from the actor Karl Markovics, who was in, you would probably know him from The Counterfeiters. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised by this film. Like, I remember reading about it and, you know, reading that it was pretty damn good, this and that. So finally checked it out. And this is extremely good. Definitely for a debut feature. It seems like this guy's been making films for years. And it's essentially just about a young man who's incarcerated at uh, like a juvenile detention center for, for, uh, for an altercation when he was like 14 years old. And he has to find work. And he ends up working at a morgue dealing with dead bodies and such. And it's sort of him going through that uh, sort of coming of age type film and he's also an orphan and he you know seeks out his biological mother and there's that storyline to it and it's just very it's very profound movie very nicely done beautifully shot just extremely pleasant surprise so i would definitely check that out breathing and it's actually this is uh play instantly on netflix Mm. so i would suggest seeking that out And then I watched Smashed, finally, mm-hmm. the Aaron Paul, Mary Elizabeth Winstead film, where that's, that's Aaron still Paul, seen this. Yeah, uh, Aaron Paul plays Jesse Pinkman, but doesn't say yo or bitch. I don't think at all. He might say bitch once, but I mean, I I, I like Aaron Paul, but come on, honestly, show a little range. He has like one facial expression, and that's it. <laughs> but I still like him. But this it it's very serious, but they try and add comedy, you know, for levity, because you're dealing with a pretty uh pretty heavy subject matter here, which is you know a, a young married couple that drink way too much, and that's really the only way they, I mean, really the only way they connect. can exist, yeah, connect or exist with each other is through their love of alcohol. So on one hand, it's very very serious and you're dealing with very heavy subject matter. And then on the other hand, they're trying to add this comedy to it to, you know, bring some levity, but 
the comedy just doesn't fit at all. Like they really go out of the way and stuff that just doesn't fit in any any way whatsoever. Which is like Nick Offerman coming on to Mary Elizabeth Winstead saying that he wants to fuck her moist pussy. Just like out of nowhere. And you're like, uh, okay. That's weird. Hmm. And then they just sort of drop it. And then, it, I mean, she gets drunk at one point and ends up smoking crack. Because apparently that's what all alcoholics do. And I know a lot of alcoholics and I don't, no one's ever done that. So that was weird. That she just goes into smoking crack. That's no, the next step. It's the next. It's a gateway. It's the it's next. Gateway. It's the natural. Next natural progression. You, you go from alcohol to crack. Just smoking crack and sleeping under a bridge. Who, who hasn't done that really? But one of the things that really bugged me is, it, I don't know if it was an attempt to like raise the stakes in the film. Is that very early on, she night of drinking. She wakes up hungover. She's late for work. She gets there. She takes a couple shots from her flask. She goes in. She's a first grade teacher. So she's doing her class. She's having a good time. You can tell she's a really good teacher. She gets sick and she vomits in class in front of all of her kids. One of the kids says, are you pregnant? And she just goes, yeah, yeah, I'm pregnant. Mm. So now all the kids think that she's pregnant. Her boss thinks that she's pregnant. And she just goes along with it for the entire film. And it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, who would who would do that? A drunk I person. Would I? I mean, no, <laughs> no, they wouldn't. They would just be like, "I'm sick." Yeah, yeah. Who just who jumps to? Yes, I'm pregnant. Fuck. Let's go with that story. That won't, you know, come back to bite me in the ass. So it's, it, it's a really good film that it's just they seem to just put in these things that just were so unneeded, so unnecessary that just really undermined everything that they were working towards. So I say it's like a light recommend. Because half of the film is really good, and then the other half is just complete shit. Just unfortunate that they mixed the two together. And then I saw The Heat. Went out and saw this comedy with Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock. I'd put comedy in quotes. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought it would. I really liked Melissa McCarthy. I loved Dan Bacadol as Craig the Albino. <laughs> who who are you married to? A sack of flour with a hole in it. <laughs> and yeah, everything between him and Melissa McCarthy just had me cracking up. Her her entire family and those ridiculous Boston accents just for whatever reason that shit always makes me laugh. Um, everyone else was just really going through the motions. I mean, I don't understand why Marlon Wayans was there. Yeah, I, I, I don't get that. Yeah, um, unnecessary. Taron Killam? Not funny. I, not fu- he, he, I mean, he killed every single scene he appeared in. Just sucked all the life out of it. <laughs> Which is a shame, because I actually like him. Oh, I like him. Now. Yeah. He's a really funny guy. And in this film, they have him playing, like, a serious role. And I'm thinking, why? Why would you get someone like this to play that role? It just doesn't make any sense. Like casting him in 12 Years a Slave? That'll be interesting. Yeah. That, but, I mean, that at least is a serious film. Like, I can understand where he's going there. He wants to get into serious film. Yeah. But why be in, like, a comedy where you're playing this serious role? I just, loved the, uh, yeah. the, the, trach- the tracheotomy scene. 
<laughs> I thought that that was one of the funniest parts of the movie, and and the uh, the scene in the nightclub when they're trying to get the phone from the guy. For some reason, yes. I just I thought that, I, that was so I, funny. I thoroughly enjoyed that. They just had, kept having to push all the women around. <laughs> and they couldn't, get, and they would just end up like even farther away, yeah, and not even realize it. I also love that Melissa McCarthy was so intent on sharing that cheese sandwich. <laughs> just kept bringing it up over and over again. Yeah, uh, I was still pretty lukewarm on the movie, though. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like the best comedy I've seen. It was it was slightly refreshing, though, to see a good comedy featuring women. You don't really get too much of that. I mean, Bridesmaids was the last thing we really seen, and before that, pretty much nothing. Mm, yeah, I'm trying to think. I know you can't really think of any, can you? No, not really. I mean, not movies. It's, it's a, I mean, it's it's definitely refreshing. I'm just, I'm worried that, like, we talked about it before with Melissa McCarthy. It's, it's running a bit thin there. Hope she gets into some other things. Did you read, did you hear uh, that whole, that Rex Reed thing with uh, the, 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 the critic Rex Reed, how he came out and said just awful things about Melissa McCarthy and he, when he reviewed Identity Thief, he came out and he said that she was like a big fat hippo and and I mean I'm paraphrasing yeah like I'm I'm paraphrasing that's that's not an exact quote but I know that he called her a hippo and was just saying the worst he called her like a tractor and he was just saying these like really awful awful things and. Like Melissa McCarthy came out and gave a statement to like the New York Times or something, and and it was it was really uh, really a good poignant statement. And then like he came back and he said, you know what, I'm not gonna apologize for anything I said. I stand by it. Uh, I he's like, I don't think obesity is funny in the slightest bit, and it disgusts me that that overweight people make fun of you know being obese. Give me a break. I'm sure he fucking loves John Candy and well, Chris Farley. Yeah, that's that's the the thing. I Such a double standard there. Exactly. If, you, if you're a guy and you're overweight, oh, fucking chuckle fest. But if it's a woman, you're like, ugh. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Gross. Yeah. So unladylike. Well, yeah. I mean, either way, I think that it's terrible. I mean, certainly he has a right to say those types of things, but just... I mean, come on. I mean, it, that's it, a dick move. Yeah, completely dick move. What's his name? Rex Reed. Yeah, Dick Reed. <laughs> dick Reed. Dick Reed. Fucking oh dick my fuck. god! What an asshole! I'm gonna go ahead and forget about him. Uh, and then uh, I watched a I watched my first ever Robert Downey Senior film. Okay. Mm-hmm. This was I didn't have much time, and I was like, okay, I need a film that meets a certain criteria and that is it needs to be less than an hour long because that's all the time that i have so i went with a film called two tons of turquoise to taos tonight which is also known as moment to moment <clears throat> this is uh a lot like the title the original title moment to moment it's just a little skit and then onto a little skit onto a little skit for 56 minutes just little snippets here and there, filmed over like two years, and it's a fucking mess. This is just awful. 
there was numerous points in the film where it just goes into like montage mode where it almost looks like a, a music video and they're just doing whatever shit they're doing. You can tell they're on shit tons of drugs. Shit tons of drugs mixed with the data, mixed with we don't give a fuck about anything. And it's awful. There's just, I mean, it, I would imagine that the people that were involved in doing this had a ton of fun. It was probably the best two years ever, just hanging out and dicking around. But for everyone else that has to, you know, watch it, it's it's awful. It's just absolutely terrible. Now, there is a very, very young Robert Downey Jr. in the film. Nice. Dressed up like a pimp, talking about selling his house and moving to Frisco to a black guy in overalls who desperately wants a Frankfurter. Mm. They also play baseball on horseback, Ooh. which was slightly interesting. That that was actually interesting. But that only lasted, you know, both of these things only lasted for maybe a minute, if that. And we're talking about 56 minutes here. <laughs> so that's two minutes. There's still 54 minutes of other shit going on that's awful. So it's like some kind of fantastic omnibus film that's just by one director yeah sort of sort of like that it's it's like uh drug and fuel drug fueled schizophrenia on film maybe sort of like that i don't know Hmm. it's like you hit the random button and just shit pops up and they're all on drugs it's all made by people on drugs so still steer well clear of this film there's nothing there Besides baseball and horseback. <laughs> and then I rewatched Pulp Fiction. Because my wife is currently going through all the like major films that she has not seen. That she's sort of embarrassed by. The List of Shame. Yeah, which is actually pretty fun for me. Because I've been wanting to watch, rewatch a lot of these films. And the last one being like uh, L.A. Confidential. So I'm getting to rewatch them. So it's working out for both of us. And, uh, like, I remember everything in Pulp Fiction. I just, the only thing I didn't remember is how, like, the sequence of events. I couldn't quite remember. Mm-hmm. So I still had that going for me. There were still some surprises there. <clears throat> and I was still thinking, like, after I watched it, I thought, okay, it's still not a 10 out of 10 for me. Because Tarantino's cinematography is just fucking terrible. It's awful in Pulp Fiction. I hate the entire look of the film. Especially his just random use of uh, slow motion, which he still does. I remember talking about that with Django Unchained. I hated it. I like that. Ah, I can't stand it. And and then I thought, you know what? I gave Louis Ball my dinner with Andre a five. And there's, I mean, there's no cinematography whatsoever in that film. It's just a film discussion. So, you know what? I just, I got to stick to my guns here. So I had to bump up Tarantino to a 10 out of 10 with Pulp Fiction. Nice. Because he makes up for it. I mean, the dialogue in this film is just some of the best you've ever seen. It's just so amazing. Well, uh, Pulp Fiction is definitely on my top five of all time. So, obviously, I'm still, obviously I love it. I still hate the sporadic, unnecessary use of slow motion. And I hate him acting in his fucking films. Quit it. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't bother me. This was this film is actually his best acting performance, though. I'll give him that. Yeah, well, he doesn't have an Australian. It doesn't put on some kind of weird Australian accent. <laughs> yeah, what the? Oh my god. That. Uh, but I, I, don't I don't know. I mean, if I was a director, I'd probably do the same fucking thing. 
Well, yeah, I mean, a well, lot yeah, of a lot fun. of directors like doing that just for fun. I mean, Hitchcock did it. He made it into a fun game, though. Yes, he did. All right, uh, that's all you got. That's all I got. Okay. That's it. Um, before we get into predictions, I just wanted to. We never mentioned TV, and uh, I just wanted to quickly mention a couple things that are on TV that might be worth checking out. Ray no, Donovan no. on oh. Showtime. Ray uh, Donovan. Ray Donovan. Remember Ray? seeing the ads oh, for Ray Donovan? I, Plastic. I hate Ray Donovan more than anything in the world. Uh, the the first episode premiered last week and it was the most watched showtime show ever i believe are you serious and i was like okay well eh, let me check it out and it was great it was are you serious it was really good i mean Liv schreiber I'm... is the main character but it also has a ton of great uh people in it like um john voight plays his his father and it's it was great. I loved it. So, so is he is he essentially like a Mr. Wolf in this film? Yeah, he's this show. Yeah, sorry. yeah, he's like a fixer, but yeah, he sure. he just works with like high profile uh, celebrities, like like athletes and movie stars and that type of thing. But he wow. has like a, he has like a team. That he has like a publicist that he works with, and then like a a muscle guy that does a lot of the heavy lifting and dirty work. But I think that it has promise. I mean, with with any TV show, be it on any channel, I'm always apprehensive to recommend it based off of the pilot. So I would say I'm going to give it a couple of weeks and see see if it really sticks with me. But so far, I'm I'm enjoying it. Uh, I also wanted to mention that Luther series three started on uh, I think BBC one or two. And it's going to be on BBC America, September 3rd. Uh, huge fan of Luther. If you haven't seen the first two seasons, it's available on Netflix, I believe. Mm-hmm. So definitely check out Luther. Um, just great series. Also, Skins started back up. And this is the final series of Skins. This is the UK one, not that ridiculous US version. <laughs> Uh, and this is the final series of skins. So what they did was they brought back characters from the previous seasons, which if you're not familiar with skins, the way that it works is there's two series with one cast and then they switch it up and the next two series are completely different cast. And okay. what they did with this, this last one, which is the seventh season is uh, they brought back some, some of the main characters from, the previous ones. Uh, one of them is Effie, who is the uh, the girl that's in Withering Heights. Yes. And uh, good, very good uh, first episode on that, too. So that's on Channel 4 in the UK. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and talk about some predictions. Last week, Despicable Me 2, I said 60, you said 70, actual 75. Still not mm. going to see it. No. <laughs> I can't stand this fucking the, minions. The minions. I'm sorry. It's the minions, man. I just they cannot. Drive, they they drive me crazy. Cannot do it. Uh, the Lone Ranger. <laughs> I said sixty-five. You said sixty-eight. Actual twenty-four. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. 
So next week we have Grown Ups Two. Now we're we're gonna be we're gonna be talking with Ryan on Thursday about Grown Ups One, and that got a nine percent. Wow! So how do you think the sequel's gonna do? Mm, five. <laughs> I'm going five. Uh, I'm gonna say. Oh god! I'm gonna say eight. <laughs> I'm going to say eight on that. Uh, Mm. We also have another big one, Pacific Rim. I'm pretty excited about Pacific Rim. Are you you at all interested in Pacific Rim? I'm interested. I am interested. I think that it's going to be. I mean, it looks looks good to me. I don't don't know how it's going to be. No, I'm going to say 76. Hmm. I'm going to say 80. I mean, I hope that it looks awesome, but who knows? Um, also in limited release, we have Fruitvale Station, which I'm very excited for, uh, VH, VHS two, which is on demand right now. So you can see that the hunt, which is one of my favorite movies of the year so far. That's the Mads Mikkelsen one, Blackfish, which I'm also interested to see. Uh, I heard that after you see that, you'll pretty much never want to go to sea world ever again. Not that I had already, yeah, not that you wanted to go in the first place. Uh, Crystal Fairy, which is the one with Michael Sarah, We should have a review for that up very soon as well. And Terms and Conditions may apply. So, oh, there you go. Good good number of stuff. Uh, DVD and Blu-ray releases. This is for Tuesday, July 9th, 2013. We have Admission. Did you see Admission? No. <laughs> I didn't either. I heard it wasn't funny at all. Which is it, a shame. I, I love Tina Fey and Paul Rudd. Just looks awful i heard that it's like not even mm. like it supposed to be laugh out loud funny but yeah. either way it, it did not get good reviews it was not well received then we have spring breakers it's a decent film yeah yeah it's <laughs> definitely a decent film it's only my the only 10 out of 10 i've seen this year if you haven't seen spring breakers i mean now's the your chances yeah now's the tuesday time. Side, tuesday is gonna be your chance side note have you did you read about the chopped and screwed version of spring breakers now this is something that i've been like i've talked about this with my wife for a long time like the last couple of years that i'm surprised no one has done this before like doing like a remix of a film i mean you see it in music all the time well actually um it, it was done once before to my knowledge and that was with anchorman they yeah they came out with a completely different version of anchorman on dvd that is almost entirely new footage and it's almost a completely different movie oh wow now i would like to see now in this what you're talking about anchorman was it done by the people you know was it done by mckay oh yeah and okay yeah i would like to see someone i would like um like in this instant, I would like Coran to hand over his footage for Spring Breakers to another director. Well, that's the rumor. The rumor is that he's going to... Oh, God, I would love to see that. The rumor is that he's going to be working with James Franco. And Franco's... Wait, maybe someone other than that? <laughs> well, that's I'm just saying that's the rumor. Also, I have a feeling it's going to be Franco heavy. This is also a complete, complete off-track side note, but did you see... The article I posted about Guillermo del Toro directing 
uh, the Slaughterhouse mm-hmm. Five reboot with Charlie mm-hmm. Kaufman writing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I died. I died for a second. That, oh my god, that excites me very much. Yeah, I, I mean, I lost my shit. That's really lost cool. Um, okay, getting back to it, Dead Man Down. I I, I don't uh, know what to say about uh, this one. Yes, yes, yes. Whatever. The host, another one that got completely dismal reviews is that one with uh Sorsa Ronan. Yeah, you don't you don't need to know anything about it. Yeah. Just pass it, skip it. Finally, skip it. Tyler Perry's ten- Temptation <laughs> Confessions of a Marriage Counselor. I'm I'm happy cuz in my mind it is it, Tyler Perry's Temptation is always synonymous with Spring Breakers to me. Because of the time of seeing both trailers back to back in my small town in Pennsylvania, where I was like, I'd never thought that this would ever happen. If you would have told me this 10 years ago, I would have said, you're a fucking idiot. And it happened. So now they're, they're always linked together. So I would like to see Harmony Corinne hand over all this footage of Spring Breakers to Tyler Perry Ooh. and see what film he comes up with. That would be very interesting. It would melt your face, I think. I would like to see that. Do it. I'd like to see. I'd like to see Tyler Perry do something. Cause I'm not. I'm not. I'm not convinced that he's not a good director. But I just think that he does these these movies. Yeah, he 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 goes. He makes fluff films. I would love to see he him play, do something. He like plays that. it safe. Yeah. You would think he would by now. All the money that he's made, just go for it. He was in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, the first one, which when I saw him on screen, I was like, what? Why is he in this movie? <laughs> mm, uh, good, any any other like criterions or anything coming out this week? I, I have one other one. I don't, I'm don't. i surprised that you didn't mention it. Maybe I didn't see it. Where I'm getting it from is maybe not entirely correct, but boy, the New Zealand comedy that we both love oh, yeah. immensely. That's so, that's inching its way up to a 10, 10 out of yes, 10 for me. I don't know. That, I don't remember what I gave it initially, but I think you gave it a nine. Yeah, I if I, I remember it. correctly. Yeah. Which I think I, I gave it the same. I have a feeling that if I rewatched it, it would be a 10. I mean, this is just a hilarious film. I've such a good time. Yeah. Loved it. So definitely check that out. There's only one criterion of note, which is the life of, uh, Oharu. Which is a Mitsuguchi film from 1952. Which is supposed to be amazing. I'm not that interested in it, but I'll probably check it out at some point in my life. About a samurai's daughter who slowly descends into prostitution. Mm. So Japanese, always cutting edge. 1952. Go for it. Nice. All right. Well, I think that that wraps it up. For all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. Send us an email, feedback at filmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. For filmpulse.net, my name is Adam. And I am Kevin. And we will see you on Thursday for Ryan Watches a Movie. La fatigue, la panique, le bonheur croit pas ta porte.
pers- uh, yeah, Pacific. That I almost said Pacific. People, Schultz, Schultz, ugh. 